This is Hot Politics. I'm David Mackay. Hot Politics is made possible by listeners like you. We're asking for your support to keep the work going. If you've supported the podcast with a donation already, thank you. If you haven't yet, please donate what you're able, whether it's $5 or $10 as a one-time contribution or monthly gift. Every little bit helps keep us producing more episodes. Please donate at nationalobserver.com. Welcome to Episode 6, Regenerative Agriculture. It's called a climate emergency, and it's a crisis that requires all hands on deck if we're going to save the planet and ourselves. Every industry has to look at how it operates and make changes to reduce and eliminate its carbon impact. Some industries, like oil and gas, get a lot of attention for what many critics call the sector's reluctant effort to change. But agriculture needs attention, too. It's responsible for 25% of greenhouse gas emissions. That's a big number that includes deforestation to create cropland, raising livestock, using harmful fertilizers, transporting goods to market. All these activities produce greenhouse gases. To its credit, the agriculture industry is looking for ways to reduce its carbon impact while still producing our food. And it has found some new, some would even say old, solutions. Today I'll be talking with two farmers who have been making big and little changes to respond to the climate emergency. And I'll also chat with a scientist who has an interest in food production. First, Arzina Hamir and her husband own an organic farm in Courtney on the east coast of Vancouver Island, where they grow 40 different fruits and vegetables. Arzina is also a big advocate for food security, and she wants to make sure everyone has access to healthy food. She joins me now. Arzina, welcome to Hot Politics. Well, thank you. Very glad to be here. 40 different fruits and vegetables. How do you keep track of them all? Mm, we have some very, very large Google spreadsheets. That's how we, how we do it. <laughs> and I think we're actually closer to almost 50 now because wow. yeah, we just keep adding. Tell me about your farm. We have a certified organic farm in the Comox Valley. We only have about five acres in production. We have a lot of forest around us that we've kept in intact. About an acre and a half is in vegetables, what people would you know normally see, carrots, onions, squash, zucchini, and then one acre of blueberries. And we now have uh, almost two acres of other perennial plants like black currants, hazelnuts, apple and pear trees, black um, elderberry. Like we are, we're trying a whole bunch of different perennial vegetables as, or perennial fruits as, as well. Like I know that you have degrees in crop science and sustainable agriculture, but is this also a passion? Oh, absolutely. I don't know anybody who can stick to this um, this farming lifestyle if they don't have a passion for it. Um, it's very hard on the body. It's not, you know, overly financially <laughs> beneficial. So 
uh, you absolutely do have to have a passion for growing. Um, for me, it's it's both the growing of the plants. I love watching new things grow. I think food is a wonderful connective tissue in community. It just, everyone has to eat. And so it's something that breaks down a number of barriers and uh, allows us to really connect. So how has that passion and your own education influenced mm-hmm. how you farm? Well, you know, from the very beginning, uh, we wanted to grow food for our community. So rather than only planting one or two crops in a large way and then exporting outside of the community, we decided to grow, you know, a whole seasons, a, a variety of crops so that we could always provide over the season. We primarily market direct to consumers. So we are at the farmer's market every Saturday. We have a CSA box program where people come to our farm and pick up a weekly box of fruits and vegetables. Um, We do a little bit of wholesaling, but that's primarily here in the Valley. So the idea really was to grow food for this community. The climate crisis is forcing change on all of us. So how do you farm differently today than when you started? It really has complicated things, I have to say. So, you know, for farmers, predicting the weather is one of the most important things that you can try and do. Knowing when to plant so that, you know, there's enough rainfall or, you know, it's starting to get warm enough, really enables us to grow food well. When the climate is kind of out of kilter and unpredictable, What ends up happening is we lose a lot of crops. In 2022, last year, I lost almost 70% of my potatoes because... 70%? Yes. um, It was a huge financial hit because it started raining in January or so, and it didn't stop until June. We had a record amount of rainfall and, you know, we're used to rainfall on the West Coast, but we had water in, we were walking in water in our, in our fields. It was up to over my ankles and our seed potato that we planted just rotted. Um, And that had never happened to us in, you know, the 20 years of farming experience I'd had. There's a lot of talk about carbon sequestering. First of all, what is it? Plants use carbon dioxide to create beef tissue and plant tissue and stems and bark. They have this way of sucking that carbon dioxide out of the air and into themselves and also into the soil. We need that right now. We have too much carbon dioxide in the air. You can use practices that accelerate the amount of carbon that is being put into the soil or that is being basically locked up in plant tissue by using specific techniques on the farm. One that probably most people will know is to plant a tree. Plant a long-lived perennial plant that's going to grow for 20 years plus. All of that plant tissue, the leaves, the barks, the stems, that all is made up of a lot of carbon. So that's one way you can do it. By using a lot of organic composts, that material is very rich in carbon. And when you apply it to the soil, you know, that carbon, as long as you don't over till your soil, that carbon should stay in the soil and feed all the worms and microorganisms and eventually make nutrients available to your plants. So are these some of the techniques that you use? 
Absolutely. As I mentioned, we were starting to grow a lot more perennial plants, plants that are there for many, many years, the blueberries, the black currants, the elderberry, and now hazelnuts are our newest crop that we're using. When we do a lot of pruning for those plants, we instead of burning the prunings, we are chipping them and keeping that wood chip on the farm. We do use a lot of organic fertilizers, so we're not using synthetic nitrogen, which is a greenhouse gas contributor. So switching to organic-based compost is really important. We also do use a technique called cover cropping, where in the fall, and actually in the summertime in between crops, we plant seeds. Um, in the fall, it would be something like peas or fall rye to grow through the winter months, protect the soil, and also suck that carbon out of the, the atmosphere. Uh, in the summer months, we use a cover crop like buckwheat, and that grows in quickly in the in the warm summer months, and then that carbon we put back into the soil. With cover cropping, you don't get a financial return. You're not harvesting anything off of the, the land. You're using that soil or the, that seed and those plants to enrich the soil, bring carbon back into the soil, and basically improve the quality of your soil. What are the big challenges in just making all of this happen? Because, you know, drought and, 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 mm -hmm. and flooding, some of the conditions that you've described. Farming is so incredibly knowledge intensive. And every year I'm taking seminars and workshops just to improve what I know about farming. And some of these techniques are very new to farmers. So learning about what works in your climate, in your community, availability of the inputs. And then I guess um, lastly, it's a financial issue. As I mentioned with cover cropping, you know, you are paying to plant seeds that you will not get a financial return from. And you're also locking up land that you could have otherwise been planting with something that you could harvest from. So, you know, farmers do have to take a financial hit when they are using some of these techniques. We need more and bigger farms to put in larger and larger acreages of, of cover crops and to put in perennial plants. And that's going to require some financial support, I think, from higher levels of government. Do you see that happening anytime soon? I do. Here in BC, you know, our Ministry of Agriculture has really taken the call um, to support um, climate-friendly uh, practices. So we have three of the practices that are now being funded. What cover cropping is can be funded to right now, as is... Um, Intensive rotational grazing of animals is another practice that can sequester carbon, and that is being funded. And then lastly, um, reduction of nitrogen fertilizers. So for those farms that do use synthetic chemical fertilizers, especially nitrogen-based ones, there is money for them to transition or to lower the amount that they're using, transition to more organic-based fertilizers, and maybe just you know learn and figure out how to use. If you're not used to using organic fertilizers, there is a learning curve. So the, the ministry is funding that through an organization called the Investment Agriculture Foundation. So farmers can apply for that funding. I just can't help wondering if it's realistic to think that farmers or people who want to get into this are really going to be patient with the learning curve that you've just mm. described. In some ways, you know, we feel the brunt of climate change. 
the heat domes that we had in BC, the incredible flooding and the loss financial and otherwise in the Fraser Valley um, that we had in 2021. Farmers can see firsthand how bad it's going it, to, it could be with climate change. And I think when you are not farming in a climate friendly way, you know, agriculture can actually be a contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. And I think more and more we're seeing society is no longer tolerating that type of practice. So I would love to see more farms adopting climate friendly practices with support. Obviously, it's doable. We see this happening in, in the European Union. Their governments fund climate progressive practices way higher than we are here in Canada. So farmers, in a sense, have to get political, don't they? Yes. <laughs> and that's not necessarily an area that uh, farmers are super comfortable with. We, some of us gen generally get into farming because we don't like people. But um, <laughs> yeah, you know, farming and, and, and eating local is a political act. The techniques that you've talked about, are these examples of regenerative agriculture? Yes. Yeah. That's the, the overall overarching term. Uh, regenerative agriculture implies that you are trying to make things better than what how you found it. It's not just sustainable. It's regenerating, um, you know, in, improving the carbon in your soil, improving and protecting wetlands and forested lands in your soil and just, yeah, doing things in a better way. You run an organic farm. Mm -hmm. And there are certain national criteria that need to be met in order to farm for the farm to be organic. Mm -hmm. Is that the same case for regenerative agriculture? No. Well, not yet, I guess is the best uh, answer. And, and that's a really good question. In the organic sector, there is a lot of regulations, and these are national regulations that across Canada, any farmer who claims that they are organic must be inspected. You need to do a lot of record keeping so that the inspectors can see basically from when you harvested, working backward, the ability to see what inputs you put into the ground, what seed you purchased, how you stored your, your crops, how you clean your, your areas. All of these things are recorded so that when needed, we can show a third-party inspector that we've done all the right things. I would say in the regenerative movement, it's not quite there yet. Um, there are no national standards, and that is a fear that the word could be co-opted if we don't have standards. I know I'm, I hear that there are people working on them, which is, is really great to hear because right now it is a little bit of a, a wild west in terms of who claims that they are farming regeneratively, what that word actually means. So I think it would be really helpful to have a baseline of standards so that if you want to use that word, you need to at least at minimum do these things. You know, before I started, you know, digging into some of the research for this for this conversation, I couldn't tell you the difference between organic farming and regenerative agriculture. Yeah. Is that the kind of confusion that becomes a problem? It could. I know the organic sector is having this very conversation itself as well, because we see a lot of farmers saying, oh, regenerative is better than organic. And I would say, I think the, the best would be organic regenerative, using organic-based 
um, practices. So not using synthetic fertilizers or pesticides, and then incorporating some of the practices of regeneration, like no-till agriculture, cover cropping, intensive rotational grazing. All of these are nice to haves in organics, but are not are not part of the standard. So I think our industry will probably move in that direction. So help me understand this. What would be one big difference between the two? Probably the use of chemicals. If you're regenerative, but not certified, not organic, you you can use synthetic, you can still use synthetic fertilizers and you can still use herbicides and pesticides. That's not currently part of the regenerative realm. I mean, regenerative does ask you to reduce the amount of synthetic fertilizers, but it's not a zero policy that the way that it is in organics. I want to end by keeping the focus on consumers. So Mm. if you could tell consumers like me who are far removed from the food process, one thing about how agriculture is helping the environment, what would you say? For a consumer, if you have a relationship with your with a farmer or whoever grows your food, asking those questions about what kind of practices do you use? Like, how are you helping with carbon sequestration. I hope everybody um, gets to be able to use that term and knows what that means and start asking farmers what kind of practices they are using to be climate friendly. Well, I'm certainly glad that we've had this conversation. Arzina Hamir, thank you very much. My pleasure. It was great to talk to you, David. Philip Loring is a human ecologist and the Errol Chair in Food, Policy, and Society who teaches at Ontario's University of Guelph. The professor is also the author of Finding Our Niche, which analyzes Western society's environmental missteps and suggests how we can get back into harmony with nature. Philip Loring, welcome to Hot Politics. Thanks, David. I'm happy to be here. Glad to have you. We seem to be particularly out of sync with our food, how we grow it, what we grow, and the chemicals and fertilizers we need to produce it. How do traditional farming methods contribute to the climate crisis? That's a great question, and there are a handful of ways. I think the best way to think about it is that much of our food systems are what I call take-and-make-waste food systems. They work by building our food out of the raw materials of our environment, but then they've put very little back. And because they put very little back, then we have to put more in by way of fertilizers and chemicals and amendments uh, to keep doing that. And that process erodes. It it erodes the soil. It erodes the biodiversity around our farms. It, it relies on deforestation. And all of those practices also contribute directly and indirectly to climate change when you cut down a forest, you release carbon from the biosphere. Uh, When you transport foods halfway around the world, you put carbon into the atmosphere uh, through the use of fossil fuels. So there's lots of different ways. And then animals in our food systems too, um, right now uh, contribute a a pretty large amount uh, of greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide and methane um, to climate change as well. I've heard lots of allusions so far to soil. Why is soil so important? Soil is like the nexus of of health for the ecosystem. It is the the place where the birth and death and rebirth all happen. 
Uh, soil is a tremendous living community. It has mycorrhizal fungi, um, lots of, of organisms, microorganisms, insects, worms. When we eat food, we turn that energy from what's useful to us to something that's not as useful to us, the waste. The soil brings it back. The soil holds on to water. Um, healthy soil does, that is. And so if we cultivate healthy soil, then we cultivate healthy ecosystems and healthy people because healthy soil means more nutritious food, more macro, macro and micronutrients in our food. And so it's a win-win. It's like the, it's, it's the, it's the foundation really. And so how do changes to farming practices or crops improve the soil then? At the heart of regenerative agriculture or agroecology is really working with cycles, patterns of change in ecosystems at two levels. One is at the soil itself. And so there's a lot of attention paid to the soil as an indicator of what needs to happen next. Right? Okay, we grew a crop this year. What's the soil doing? What do we need to do next to ensure this overturn of nutrients and keep that soil healthy and keep that soil able to give back? A lot of people, for example, are not are not plowing anymore. If you think of a, a, a really well-established community, an ecological community. Imagine what happens to it when you dig it up and turn it over and cut through it. The Dust Bowl is what happens when you do that too much of the early 1900s in North America. And so no-till agriculture has become uh, much more popular. And instead of just focusing on how we, how we can plant and work with the land and again, bring in animals to ensure we're putting those nutrients back in as we take them out in, um, in terms of our own food, giving the soil a chance uh, to do its own thing, right? To be a partner in agriculture instead of instead of a thing we're trying to control instead of a blank slate that we're just trying to put the nutrients into with fertilizers and so forth. So we're in the midst of a climate crisis and we're looking for all kinds of solutions. How does this practice address the climate crisis? There's a, a few direct and a couple of indirect ways. There's a, a pretty significant opportunity to draw carbon back into our soil. So soil can be a sink Right. And so that can help us mitigate, that can help us draw down a little bit of what we're putting in every year to try to keep on path to not not catastrophic warming. And then the indirect way is that regenerative food systems ask us to eat differently. The other thing that we expect from our food systems is the same kind of foods available every day of the week, every week of the year, 365 days, regardless of the season, regardless of where you are in the world. And that approach to food is very energy intensive. Regenerative and agroecological practices ask us to be more flexible, more willing to eat with seasons, eat with the ecosystem. And if we do that, then we lose all of the energy we're putting into trying to have everything available all the time, all at once. Uh, you said something that really tweaked my imagination, and that is getting us to change the way we eat. Isn't mm. that a really big ask? It seems that way, but... When you study the history of diet, we change how we eat all the time. In North America, we eat more meat than we ever have, and that is a relatively recent phenomenon. Or if you want a real hands-on example, look at how quickly the world started eating avocados, a 400% fold increase, I think, in the last few decades. Um, when you go back and look historically to how coastal communities, even over on the West Coast of say, you know, uh, Oregon, Washington, and, and British Columbia, how they changed what seafood they eat, ate. Uh, it was very responsive to the seafood that were in the water. And it, and you can see these changes play out in cookbook recipes. So we actually changed what we eat a lot. I, I think it takes nudges. I don't think it's this, as big of a deal as it's often made out to be.
I've heard this change in farming called regenerative agriculture, and you've used that term a couple of times now. How would you define it? I would define regenerative agriculture only in a very, very high-level sense, and that is the goal of fitting our food systems to work with, complement, or even enhance the potential of our living systems of the biosphere to regenerate itself, to take energy that, that we've made into less usable forms by eating it and put it back into more usable forms. A lot of people want to define it in a more standardized or rigorous way than that, you know, in a way that lets them put it on a product label, in a way that lets them create a standard. And that can be really problematic because I think I've insinuated that this is about diversity and different solutions in different places. And so it's always tricky to try to define things at a, at a really detailed level when they, by definition, have to sort of evade definition. Do we need to define it? I don't think so. And a lot of the people that I work with don't think so. There are legitimate concerns because there are a lot of financial interests who are looking to regenerative agriculture as a way to say, how can we invest our money? How can we be involved in something that where carbon is going to be priced to where we can make money on sequestering carbon in the ground? And I appreciate that. And so I understand why they want it defined and measured. And so it can be traded and marketed and labeled. But again, if the definitions become too prescriptive, that they once again push us down this road of having standardized uniform food systems, they're not going to be regenerative. Does the definition make it easier to greenwash, to pull the wool over our eyes? I do think that definitions like this actually help greenwash because they flatten the idea. Regenerative agriculture is not just about soil health, it's about human health. If we're not also talking about the health of our communities and whether have people have access to that food, uh, then we're not actually creating a system that's going to be fully regenerative. We're just creating a system that maybe will be sustainable for a period of time and will certainly be profitable to some, but it's not doing everything where we should be expecting our food systems to do, which is to nourish us and, and nourish community. Now, many farmers have been doing crop rotation for a long time. Is this, I don't know, uh, just to you know, play the devil's advocate, is just just a fancy way of getting people's attention? To some extent, yes. There are farmers out there who are doing things like rotating crops and trying their best to take care of soil. And and they, at the same time, are um, in the midst of, of economic incentives to still push the land as hard as they can. I think it's, it's accurate to say that we're not starting at zero here. We're starting with communities of farmers who often, and I work with a lot of farmers in my research, uh, have have very good intentions about the health of the land, want to be stewards of the land, but can only fix the part of the system that they're in, so to speak. And there's a lot of things they can't control that push us to take more than we put back. Besides the need to protect nature, what else is pushing farmers to make changes? I think that as people become more aware and concerned about climate change, and there certainly has been a blossoming of demand for action across all medias, across multiple age, age groups, the youngest generations especially, I think that farmers are starting to realize that if they don't lean more into the solutions, they're going to lose what's called social license, or maybe already are losing some social license to farm and use the practices they're using. Certainly corporations, food agribusiness corporations are realizing that, uh, the extent to which they're leaning into meaningful solutions that address all aspects of the problem or just labels that help them continue to sell products is an outstanding question. I'm glad you mentioned corporations. How do they play into regenerative farming? 
It's been very interesting to watch because many are actively trying to look up their supply chain. A business that buys grains for their products, the emissions involved in creating those grains, they're not their direct emissions. They're what's called scope three. And there's increasing pressure for these companies to be able to say to their investors and their shareholders, we're reducing our emissions. And so they're putting pressure on their suppliers and they're saying, how can we help you? How can we support you to make some of these changes? And so it's coming from the market. It's coming from, from corporations. And again, the goal post that these, the different firms are setting is different. And so that's where the question is, is the goalpost just to be able to get the check mark on an investor scorecard, or is the goalpost really one where they've committed to substantive improvements to our food system that have improved not just soil, but also community? And what about price? Does this mean that we end up paying more for the food that we eat in order to fight climate change? It does, specifically in the transition, right? People who have the ability to pay are in a unique position here to push the food system forward as early adopters and to signal this is what it needs to be. And also at the same time, again, to advocate for the changes to labor practices, to income policies, to whatever policies are implicated in why people don't have the money they need to afford good, high quality food and address those at the same time. Is there a role for governments in, in, in all of this? I think that there are opportunities for governments to support and create incentives that help people who are trying to build alternative ways to access food, vegetables, alternative seafood, fisheries, uh, face an uphill battle because they're operating in the shadow of a very dominant, strong, wealthy system that provides most of us with our food and does, you know, for what it's worth, a fairly good job of it. So to break in, to be disruptive, to create a new niche, sometimes requires a little bit of a leg up. Not because there's no merit in the alternative, but because the the alternative is, is operating and try to innovate in a disadvantage on more marginalized land or on land that people don't own. One example of a way that we could foster more innovation in our food system is having a conversation about the privatization and consolidation of farmland. It's happened quite a bit in the United States. It's happening here in Canada where lands are being bought and by investors and then rented. And when you're renting land, you have to face a completely different set of incentives than when you own it in terms of what you produce on it, how, what you're expected to produce on it and so forth. And farmland renting to me strikes me as one of the biggest barriers we have to taking risks, to trying new things and to making our food systems more regenerative. When we talk about building trust in our food system, and we've alluded to this many times during our conversation, I'm thinking about consumers, mm -hmm. you, me. What are, what's the role of consumers in all of this? We're not just consumers, we're also citizens. And so we shouldn't let ourselves be constrained to thinking that our only role in supporting, pushing for, demanding food systems change is at the store. It's also in local and municipal voting. It's in provincial voting. I can't tell you how many times I've encountered barriers that small-scale local food producers face that could be solved at city council. Right. And so there's voting, there's action, there's working on food security, there's working on issues related to income and human rights. All of those are food systems issues. Thank you very much for this conversation. It was a pleasure, David. Thanks so much for having me on. Like Arzina Hamir, who we talked to a few minutes ago, Leslie Kelly didn't immediately become a farmer after university. But today she lives on a family farm in Watrous, Saskatchewan about an hour east of Saskatoon. She grows a variety of crops, including lentils and peas. 
She grew up on the farm, went off to university, and landed a job in the financial services industry in Edmonton. But a decade ago, she moved back to the farm with her husband and two sons to join her father and her brother and his family running the family farm. And she started a blog called High Heels and Canola Fields. That could be a description of her travels from the city to the country. In the blog, she shares stories about family life on the Saskatchewan grain farm. And she co-hosts a podcast called What the Farm? where she talks about food, farming, and how it affects the consumer. Leslie Kelly, welcome to Hot Politics. Oh, thank you so much for having me. How long have you been on this farm? So I'm born and raised on the farm that uh, we currently operate and manage, uh, but I never had aspirations to be a farmer or come back to the farm. But um, through my career, all the steps led me to where I am today. I'm intrigued with uh, some branding here. High heels and canola feel. <laughs> yes, What's that so, all about? <laughs> uh, so one of those steps in my career to come back to the farmer led me back here was after university. So I went to the U of S and I majored in marketing because I I wanted to be, you know, an account executive or uh, a marketing executive in a big city. And my dad called me one day after university and said, well, you're the marketer. And I would love to build a snack food or a value add to the farm. Would you be interested in doing this? Yes, I don't know anything about building a snack food company or food production. And after a couple of years of market development and testing and and everything, we launched a snack food using or growing the barley from our farm. And it was a snack food that we sell that we sold throughout Western Canada. And through my working with those who had never met a farmer selling to an urban audience, we got lots of questions about why we did the things on the farm or how we were growing barley and all the other crops. And that's where I thought of, you know, I would love to share a little bit more about our farm story and, and life on the farm and be a place that people can go to answer these questions. So that's where I built High Heels and Canola Fields, a blog, and it's morphed into many other things. And it's all around building community around food and farming and love. What's undeniable is the passion, right? So where does the passion for this come from? There's so many things that are rooted in in doing what we do as farmers. I'm very proud to be of the 2%. You know, there's only 2% in Canada that grow food. And it there's so much to learn and there's such a sense of pride of growing a crop and all your decisions and the hard work that goes into it and then harvesting that crop and then grow food that's eaten across the world. But then also there's the passion that comes from, you know, this is a farm that my great grandpa built when he came over from Scotland and that my dad then saw the next vision of the farm and the passion and the optimism optimism and the opportunities that he saw and so I think it comes from both like the work uh, that is involved in growing food and then also there's the family dynamic I get to work with the people that I love the most and see I have two small boys and I hope that um if they have that same passion, that they'll also continue on. When you were growing up on the farm, and you, you just talked about your father, what did he grow? I would say we almost had like a, a little bit of an old McDonald farm uh, where we had 
um, some cattle, some pigs, even the odd goats, uh, chickens. And then in terms of crops, it was primarily wheats and barley and oats, a lot of the cereals. In the 90s, he thought that, you know, there's things within my control, and that is diversifying the farm, being better at marketing the crops that I grow, and being a really good farm manager. So that was where he then invested a lot of time into being uh, a, a marketer and learning the markets and then changed the the farm by starting to grow canola which then allowed us to become no-till rather than um, plowing half of the the farm we then started to grow crops on all of the fields so it really changed the dynamic and the, the future of the farm to where it is where it is today so talk to me a little bit about lentils and peas. Yeah, so in that change, uh, starting to grow canola, shortly after there had been some market opportunities to start uh, diversifying the farm into pulses. And so we have tried uh, peas in the past. We don't grow any peas uh, or have grown peas in the last few years, but have really gotten behind growing lentils. They're, they're such a fantastic crop, not only for the farm, but, you know, for economic return. But then we saw how it was great for the environment in, in what they do. So with lentils, um, they fixate their own nitrogen. So they put nitrogen back into the soil. So we use less inputs and then it's great for the environment because we're using less fertilizer as well. So how hard is it then to grow lentils? They so they're a little bit of a tricky crop to grow. So over the years, it was uh, a lot of trial and error. So they're good for many uh, factors because we can seed them early because they uh, do well in you know cold cold soils. So we can seed them early, and then they grow to about uh, six to twelve inches. So they're a short crop. If we get uh, a lot of moisture, they have potential to drown. They are susceptible to molds and diseases, but they grow really good. They're, they're, they grow quite well in, let's say, dry dry conditions, of which we've had over the last few years. You have to go slow with, with this type of crop because it's so low. So we start harvest early. They are one of the first crops that we take off. It's slow to take them off. And then you can really only harvest them in daylight because any moisture, uh, it creates the plant gets really wiry and then it's hard on the equipment. It, it can have its challenges, but there's also really great things that allow us on the farm to grow lentils. We can take it off early. There's great market opportunities. And then it's a great uh, rotation mix. I know that when a lot of people, including myself, think of Saskatchewan, they think of Canada's breadbasket. But I'm wondering whether or not people make the association between Saskatchewan and lentils. Yeah, it's it's coming. Um, I I would agree. Like uh, Saskatchewan is known for the breadbasket, but then also our bright blooming yellow canola that are so beautiful. Where we grow ninety five percent of Canada's lentils, and they're exported to countries like India and Turkey, Egypt, because it's such a great source of protein and carbohydrates. So yeah, it's one of those things where. Uh, Saskatchewan is so diverse when it comes to our crops, and it's uh, it's a really awesome thing to to see over the past 20, 20 or so years. Now, you, you've, you've alluded to this, the fact that lentils are actually good for the environment. They may be tricky to harvest and to pick, but they are good for the environment. Can you dig into that a little bit more? 
Yeah. So when it comes to, to lentils, they're, they're a pulse that um, they fixate their own nitrogen. So when it comes to the farm, we use fertilizer to help grow, grow our crops. And a lot of the other crops that we grow, they take out that fertilizer or the nutrients in the soil. But the really cool thing about lentils is they put that nutrient source back into the soil. So then we're able to, to use that nutrient source for the next year's crop. So we use less fertilizer or less inputs, which is also great then for the farm and then for the environment. And the other really cool thing about um, lentils is there's no till that the rotation of these crops, canola and lentils or pulses and cereals, we all do it no till where we don't break up the soil surface. We don't release the carbon. We actually capture the carbon and we sequester it, which is such a great thing for the for the environment overall. So as a farmer, I'm proud to say of all of the great things that we do through our technology and investments on the farm, the investments in our seed genetics and our crop inputs that allow us to really be stewards of the land and do great things for the environment. What are some of the other techniques you use to uh, that are conducive to a healthy environment? So there's many technologies that we've invested on the farm that not many people know about. Um, we have temperature and moisture sensors and weather stations. So we know how, where the soil is at, uh, what the soil needs, and it can read everything from plant health and water needs to nitrogen and organic levels in the soil. So we know exactly how much fertilizers or um, things that the crop needs to grow, we know exactly how much and exactly where to put it. And so that's less passes with equipment. Uh, so less gas for us, it's great because then it, uh, it's less investment or less money coming out of our farm too. We use satellite and GPS technology, um, variable rate control. So that goes into the reduced passes, less fuel, less overlap of crop input uh, products. We have better trackers and more precise seeding and fertilizer applications. We use farming software and data at the granular level that helps us be better managers and to help us make those decisions. On your blog, uh, you talk about using your background and experience in branding and communications to dispel myths and bring consumers and farmers together. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about a term that we've been we've been delving into on this podcast, and that is regenerative farming or regenerative agriculture. Take a stab at that. What does that what does that mean to you? You know, this has come up a lot at conferences, events, yeah, at the you know coffee shop. And regenerative agriculture for me is just doing the doing the right things for your farm that take care of your natural resources. So taking care of the water, taking care of the soil, taking care of the land, taking care of the crops or the animals that you grow. And it's all part of a great cycle. So the decisions that we make today, um, we think about three, four, five years, even sometimes 10 years down the road. Um, the great thing that I love to share is even though it, it, we refer, you know, sustainability and maybe regenerative egg as a buzzword that's crept up in, into the media over the past year or two, we've been using these terms in agriculture, all different. Um, but for us, we've been doing those practices. We've been doing regenerative agriculture. We've been sustainable. We are sustainable for decades and decades. And we're constantly making those changes because we know that better soil, um, taking care of the land, it is good for 
everyone. It's in good for the environment. It's good for the farm. It's and it's good for those who are eating the food too later on. So regenerative egg is is all about making the best decisions for your farm and for the future of the farm and for your resources. What would be some of the myths around regenerative agriculture? Oh, that um, maybe only a couple farmers are are doing regenerative agriculture or regenerative agriculture is only organic or you're only using natural inputs or you're not spraying um, or using synthetic fertilizers. Like there's a whole bunch of myths, but um, uh, there's, I always like to share that um, we need all types of farms, just like how those who eat the, the food that we grow, um, there's many different audiences. We're all shapes and all sizes. And so are farms. But the general notion is that farms are sustainable. They're doing great things. They're making really great choices and they're doing great things for the environment, no matter if they're 10,000, 20,000 acres or five acres um, or organic or conventional. There's only 2% of us that our farmers. And we want to ensure the viability and the strength of our industry. And it comes from having our farms make those decisions that are good for their farms too. Because it's so frustrating to to put all your blood, sweat and tears and know that what you grow is safe and healthy. And then see a campaign or some blogger in New York saying how a conventional farm is killing everyone by using this and this and this. And it's like, oh, here's Here's the different, here are the reasons why we do these things. So that is one of the biggest hurdles that we're facing in agriculture is getting our story out. We want questions. We want to share our story, but have that two-way dialogue too. So people can um, have their answers or questions answered. So in addition to developing techniques that are good for the environment, we have to add communication skills. Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, And it's so, and it's, and it's hard. Well, Leslie Kelly, I'm glad that you were able to put your really impressive communication skills to work (laughs) in chatting with us. And I thank you for this. It's an important topic. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Lots to chew on, if you'll pardon the pun. Farmers are doing their part, and it's up to us to make informed decisions about the food we buy. We'll continue our look at solutions to agriculture's carbon footprint. Just a reminder that we need your help to continue our podcasts. Every donation helps. And please rate us a five on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. We want everyone to find us. Hot Politics is produced by Canada's National Observer. Our managing producer for podcasts is Sandra Bartlett. Associate producer, Zara Kozema. Our editor-in-chief is Karen Pouillet. Our publisher is Linda Solomon-Wood. I'm David Mackay. Next week, it's Maxed Out with Max Fawcett.